I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, we're going to talk about, well, international cryptids. This episode is called The International Cryptid, The International Cryptids, The Desperate Plea for Listeners in Countries That Aren't Listening to Me Right Now Edition. But first, as always, shout-outs. Shout-outs to the coolest crew in the world, the, the coolest bunch of people that are listening to podcasts out there. Go to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac for as little as a dollar a month. You can help support this show, get shout-outs, get special gifts, get extra episodes. There's a lot of fun stuff on there. So, Happy New Year to Keith, Autumn, Nanashi, Shani, Vanessa, Troy, Veronica, Amber, Nick, Manning, Jeff, Megan, Kat, Martin, Lash, Kira, Maggie. Happy New Year, Maggie. Laura O., Anthony, Jamie, Todd, and Elijah Hendrickson. If you haven't listened to last night's episode or the last episode, one that I put up yesterday, it's with Elijah Hendrickson, who is the coolest kid. He did an amazing job on the episode. I hope you guys liked it. I loved it. So, special shout out to Elijah. You're awesome, man. Anyhow, back to the group. Happy New Year, Dan, Angie, Matt, Laura, Chuck, Travis, Sarah, David, Michaela, Heidi, Rachel, Lindsay, Juliana, Edgar, Sarah, J. Mark, Carolyn, Jim, Jade, Carolyn, Pablo, Jeff, Laura, Jeff, Dill, Laura, Daniel, Laura. And I got two special shout-outs this week. The first special shout-out is to Kirsten Walters. Kirsten, thank you so much for listening. Please tell your mom and dad I said hi. And a very special shout-out to Lily Venable. Lily, thank you so much for your support and for listening. I really do appreciate it. Next up, we have Paranormal News. All right, the first story on Paranormal News is that scientists rule out predator in livestock killings in Manipur. So wildlife experts are investigating a mysterious slaughter of livestock in Manipur, but they've ruled out involvements of any known predators. So they don't know what are, they don't know exactly what are killing the livestock in India. The slaughter of livestock started from hill district of Trachinpur, Trachind, Trachinpur, where the first incident was reported in a nearby village on October 27th after a large number of chickens and ducks were found slaughtered with its mutilated carcasses left behind. So it's not a typical slaughtering. It's almost very chupacabra-like. They're trying to figure out, is it domestic animals that are killing them or is it humans that are killing them? But the carcasses bore no teeth marks and were ripped open very cleanly. So these have been going on for quite a while. First, they thought it might have been wolf dogs or jackals or pet dogs, and they said, nope, nope, and nope. So then they said, maybe it's leopards or cats or jungle cats, but those don't even seem to fit these killings. They have no idea what's going on with these killings, and they're still happening. So hopefully, we'll get an update on this report, you know, sooner than later. Next up in paranormal news, ghost filmed in British pub smashing glasses. The landlady revealed spirits were caught on the closed-caption TV, the uh, security footage that they have. 
So it's an interesting video from the Star Pub, Star Inn Pub, on the Isle of Wight. And it does appear to show something. There's a pint glass on the table. There's nobody else there. And then the glass starts to slide towards the edge of the table, apparently without condensation or any help. And then it suddenly falls over the table and spills the content. And that's not the only one. In another clip, the kitchen can be seen with glasses piled really high. Now, there's two glasses on top of a box, but then there's only one. So the glass is almost seen like sent toppling, hitting a pizza box before dropping to the floor. It's interesting video. I don't know what to make of it. Um, they were captured by Tony Brennan, who's the landlady of the Star Inn. The first incident occurred in October, and the second was on Christmas Eve. So... I don't know. It's a 200-year-old pub. There hasn't really been a ton of ghost sightings prior to this. They said that the uh, the pub has faced its share of misfortunes, including a fire in 1981 and a near destruction by a Nazi bomb in World War II. So it's interesting. I'll throw it up onto the Facebook page so you guys can take a look, see what you guys think. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a ghost caught on film. The next story is, UFO? Outer Banks Fisherman Captures Video of Lights Multiplying Over the Dark Atlantic. This is a 90-second video on the Outer Banks night, uh, on the Outer Banks, filmed on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. It's by a night fisherman, and he's wondering what the heck it is that he saw. The recording was done on November 29th, and it's, um, it's, I'm sorry, the recording is from mid-November, it was posted on YouTube on November 29th at Cape Lookout, which is the southernmost point of the Core Banks. It's been viewed by more than 90,000 times at the time of this writing. National Park Service officials at Cape Lookout told the Charlotte Observer they were not sure what the set of lights might be, but did find them, quote, peculiar. One Outer Banks resident told the Charlotte Observer the mysterious lights have been appearing off the Cape for more than 20 years, and witnesses have come to believe they're harmless. One witness says, tell people not to hit the panic button. They're not a concern. So, something's off the coast of North Carolina, and apparently nobody really cares. Which I always find is interesting. If you have a common occurrence like this, it's still unidentified. It's been happening for 20 years, which means it's not the same. You would think it wouldn't be the same technology. If it was a 20-year-old, it could be an experimental aircraft that we just didn't know about yet. Well... The experimental aircrafts that we didn't know about 20 years ago are, sure, some of them could still be classified, but most of them are known by now. And you'd start to say, oh, well, that's the B-1 or whatever. So it's odd that it's been going on for 20 years with seemingly no explanation, and the residents just kind of accepted it and don't care. All right, so this next story, a lot of you guys sent it to me. Thank you so much. I was hoping it was paranormal just as much as you were. The night that it happened, I must have gotten at least a dozen people saying, dude, check out this story. There's a UFO over New York. Well, the New York sky did glow blue. It did look really paranormal. And it kind of looked like the containment unit in Ghostbusters was just released. You know, they just took turned off the containment unit and all the ghosts burst out or... A Cloverfield monster was finally hit in New York, but turns out it was nothing more than a Transformer explosion. Really interesting, really cool looking, really neat. Got my hopes up that, you know, something was invading New York, but sadly, nothing paranormal. And last but not least, for paranormal news, 
Kiowa resident records what appears to be a UFO in the night sky. And this happened in Kiowa Island, South Carolina. So a viewer sent the local news what appears to be a strange round object in the sky above Kiowa Island on Christmas Eve. So another one on Christmas Eve. Really interesting. Deborah Thompson, who lives on the water near the golf course, stepped outside to disconnect her outdoor Christmas tree when she looked up and saw the bright object in the sky. She says it's not unusual to see strange things in the sky out here. Why are you people in the Carolinas so blasé about UFOs? What the hell? You have UFOs in your sky. This should be awesome. This should be ground, earth-shattering, groundbreaking news. And you people are like, nah, we see stuff all the time. She goes on to say, But this felt different. For a second, I thought it was Venus, but it was way too large in the wrong place in the sky. I like that. She's already debunking and checking things off the list. She said it was located in the northwest sky, moving at a rather fast clip, sometimes stopping as if it was observing something. She says it was moving towards my direction and seemed intelligent in control. I felt as if it knew I was filming it. I don't think it's some kind of kid's toy, and I know it's not an airplane. So again, she's checking things off the list, which is fantastic. You see something in the sky, you can't identify it. Start checking things off the list. Is it a satellite? Is it a planet? Is it the moon? Is it swamp gas? Is it your neighbor? Like, check things off the list. She described the object as very bright, red in color, with a bit of orange. Said it seemed to be getting smaller. And that's because it was moving away. The object, uh, she saw the object at around 9.30 p.m. The sky was clear, no wind, no clouds, and the night was extraordinarily quiet. Now she says, it doesn't look as good in the video. With the naked eye, it was much more brilliant to see, which, again, isn't that surprising. If you've ever tried to take a photo of the moon, you know what she's talking about. And she's like, I just want to know what it was and should we be worried? They say they have actually an update to this story. After a post, after publishing our initial story, we received several emails from people who believe they may have also seen the mysterious object. A resident on Adisto Beach told us their room lit up brighter than the full moon at about 6 a.m. In the southeast, in the sky over my dock, it was a huge bright orange ball. I watched it for a while and tried to take a picture. Thought it was a Christmas miracle. And then there was also an email from a California resident who said they also saw the odd light at around 5.30 a.m. Hopefully, this California resident was in South Carolina at the time because that's kind of odd. They said while looking up information on UFOs Friday morning, they came across this article and sent us pictures of what they show a bright white and round light in the sky. It was just as the lady said, very colorful too. I live on the central coast about 15 minutes from the beach and it was westward over... Okay, so they do live over there. And it was westward over towards the ocean. So, perfectly. Hey, uh, news article. Don't call him a California resident or mention a person that lives in California... California resident that now lives in South Carolina would have been very nice to say. But, regardless. So there is... And it keeps going on. There's another witness. Uh, they witnessed the same light around the same time, the same day. They felt the, the light had a presence to it and that they were connected to it. It was a great feeling and it was brilliant. So there's actually a, quite a few eyewitnesses to this UFO event over South Carolina. Really interesting. Really, uh, really neat. And if there's any good footage, I will make sure I put that on the Facebook. And if there's photos, I'll make sure I put it up on the Instagram as well. All right. With that, let's get to this. On this edition, I want to talk about more international cryptids. 
If you've listened to all the episodes, you know I've done an International Cryptids episode before, actually a couple of them. But I chose these because they just so happen to randomly live or have been seen in countries that as of yet have not listened to Paranormal Almanac. For those of you that don't know, just recently I posted an image on Facebook page, on the Facebook page, of countries that listen to Paranormal Almanac. It's like, you know, a world map, and it shows me whenever an episode, whenever I have a new listener or um, like when I check out the statistics, it'll show me where in the world people are actually listening to Paranormal Almanac. It's really neat. It's really amazing to me that there are people all over the world listening to me as I'm recording this. Well, not as I'm recording this, but listening to my recordings of this show. Thank you so much for listening. But... And, and like I said, holy crap, there are a ton of them. But that same page, that same photo, also shows me the countries that aren't listening to Paranormal Almanac. So I'm trying to figure out what I can do for world domination, if you will. So again, most of the world has listeners of Paranormal Almanac, and that blows me away. It's amazing. So just a quick sample, but thank you to my Kenyan listeners, my Egypt listeners, South African, Morocco, Oman, all over the world. Thank you so much for listening to this. So to all of you, thank you. If you happen to know someone who lives in a country that isn't listening to Paranormal Almanac, please tell them to listen to one episode so I can check it off my world domination list that I was talking about. Um, and if you want this, if you want to see the photo, you can go to the Facebook page. You'll see the photo. It's kind of difficult. There, I had a couple people from Australia go, hey, I'm, I'm in Australia. I listen to you. It's the white, white countries that aren't listening to me. The off-white countries means I have a smattering of listeners, and by smatterings, it means thousands of listeners. It's still, a, like I said, blows me away, still a fair amount of listeners. But if, but the plain white ones, very obvious, like Greenland and Iceland and Svalbard and the Koreas, and, you know, there's there's some big gaps in the map. Those are the ones, hopefully with this episode, those are the ones that I can check off this list. And the first one on this list is actually one of my favorites. I've been saving this dinosaur for a long while now. I've hinted at it a couple of times in the episode, but I really haven't dove deep into it. It's one of my favorite ones. It comes out from the, um, spotted in the Congo River. It's a large sauropod dinosaur. It's been seen for years, and its name is Mokeli Mbembe. The name means one who stops the flow of rivers. And that's referring to its size. It's thought to be about 35 foot long with brownish grayish skin and a long neck. It's a freaking dinosaur. I mean, it looks like an Apatosaurus or Brontosaurus or Brachiosaurus, whatever you want to call it. Now, it's said to feed on elephants, hippos, and crocodiles, and even in a few reports, people. Now, there are other reports that say, nope, it only feeds on plants, but it is very territorial and will strike out anything that comes near it, whether it be people, hippos, elephants, whatever. The origin of Michaelia Mbembe can be traced back to its first dinosaur-like footprint. It's like a large claw-shaped footprint, which was found by a French missionary in 1776. But it primarily came into common knowledge in a 1909 book titled Beasts and Men by a showman and zoologist named Carl Hagenbeck or Hagenbeck. In that book, Hagenbeck, who was talking about recently discovered dinosaur bones, well, he speculated that sauropods, like the Apatosaurus, might still be alive in the deepest Africa. 
Now, he had no evidence for this. I mean, it's just legends and whatnot. But he was like, nope, I think it's going to be real. I think it's there. It's in the deep, darkest pits of Africa that, that where no one ever goes. So just saying that, these claims were picked up by the press all around the world. It was 1909, remember. And for example, a Washington Post story from around 1910 announced that brontosauruses still live. Technically, the title was Brontosaurus Still Lives. And um, it was just instant fame for him. So he went off looking for Mokele and Bembe. In 1913, a German named Captain Ludwig Freyer von Stein conducted a study when locals told him about Mokele and Bembe. Now he wrote, The animal is said to be of a brownish-grayish color with smooth skin. Its size is approximately that of an elephant, at least that of a hippopotamus, it is said to have a long and very flexible neck and only one tooth, but a very long one. Some say it's a horn. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. That's a really bizarre description. I mean, it started great, and then it dwind- then it started falling apart pretty quick. It's approximately the size of an elephant, or maybe a hippo. And it's only got one tooth, but that tooth might be a horn. Okay, you got to get your story together a little bit. He goes on to say, a few spoke about a long, muscular tail like that of an alligator. Canoes coming near it are said to be doomed. The animal is said to attack the vessels at once and to kill the crews, but without eating the bodies. The creature is said to live in the caves that have been washed out by the river in the clay of its shores at sharp bends. It's said to, have, it's said to climb the shores even at daytime in search of food. Its diet is said to be mostly entirely vegetable. This feature disagrees with a possible explanation as a myth. The preferred plant was shown to me. It's kind of a liana with a large white blossom with a milky sap and apple-like fruits. At the Somba River, I was shown a path said to have been made by this animal in order to get at its food. The path was fresh and there were plants of the described type nearby. But since there were so many tracks of elephants, hippos, and other large mammals, it's impossible to make out particular spore with any amount of certainty. Which is the shame that he just didn't take any stool samples, any samples that he could find, castings of the footprints, that we could now, you know, we could do research on them now. We could check them to see if it's something that's known or something that's unknown. But unfortunately, he did not do that. It was 1913, after all. Alfred Olysius Smith, who had worked for a British trading company in what is now Gabon in the late 1800s, well, he briefly mentioned in his 1927 memoir, the Jagonini and the Almali, which are, let's see, um, he says, behind the Cameroon, there's things living that we know nothing about. I could have I made books about many things. The Jagonini, they say, is still in the swamps and the rivers. Giant diver is what it means. It comes out of the water and devours people. Old men tell you that their grandfathers saw that, but they believe it's still there. The same as the Amali. It's always been, it's always taken it to be there. I've seen the Amali's footprint. It's about the size of a good frying pan in circumference with three claws instead of five. So what the hell is making those footprints? This guy saw it. Sure, it's in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but still... That's not that long ago. There is something out there that are making these weird footprints. In 1980 and 1981, monster hunter and retired University of Chicago biologist Roy Mackle headed explorations to the 
Lekula and Lake Tele regions of the Congo, which are supposedly where the Michaelia Mbembe really inhabits. There's like that's where you see them all the time. In 1981, American engineer Herman claimed that he went. Uh, he led his own expedition to find Michaelia Mbembe. He found a long-necked member in the in Lake Tele, so right where they thought it would be, and he returned with droppings, footprint casts, and sound recordings unlike any animal known to the Congo Basin area. Let's listen in. One more time. Uh, that's about it. If you told me that that was a UFO, I would have said that sounds like a UFO. If you told me that's some demon, I would say it's a demon. If you told me that's some... 1976 Chevy Nova driving down the street, dragging a tailpipe, I'd say it was that. But apparently, it's Michele Mbembe. Sure. Here's my thing. That was 1981. He says he has droppings and footprint cast and all this other fun stuff. Why hasn't that been DNA tested? And if it has, I can't find it. I hope it was. But if it wasn't, why not? Seems like that's the first thing you would do with any sample you'd bring back at this point, or any sample that was found... 40 years ago. Now, he goes on to say that the animal was partly submerged and remained visible for 20 minutes with only the neck and head above the water. This was 1981. I'm sure he had a camera. Why the hell aren't there a thousand photos of this thing that was visible for 20 minutes with the neck and head above the water? Um, you know, take that with a grain of salt. He goes on to say at approximately 2.30 p.m., we were able to observe a strange animal with a wide back, a long neck, and a small head. The animal was located about 300 meters from the edge of the lake, and we were able to advance about 60 meters. So he's about 240 meters away in the shallow water, placing it at a distance about 240 meters from the animal, which then became aware of our presence and was looking around as if to determine the source of the noise. A local villager shouted, uh, continued to shout with fear. He was really freaking out about it. The frontal part of the animal was brown, while the back part of the neck appeared black and shone in the sunlight. The animal was partly submerged, remained visible for 20 minutes with only the neck and head above the water, like he said. It then submerged completely. No further sightings of the animal took place. It can be said with certainty that the animal we saw was Mokelia Mbembe, that it was quite active, and furthermore, that it is known to many inhabitants of the... Lakula region. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. If you are listening to it in this region, please feel feel free to message me. And he says this region, which is, oh, just a heads up. This region is an area of swampland about the same size as Florida. So it's huge. This animal has plenty of room to go around. But he went on to say its total length from head to back, visible above the waterline, was estimated at five meters. So this thing is huge. But again, 1981, take some damn photos of it or video or anything. Come on, guys. From there, let's move on to 1986, where a Dutch biologist published a report as per their expedition and wrote that Hij Bestat, which means, yes, Mokeli Mbembe exists, and is said to have seen it from behind himself and couldn't explain what else it could be. Another expedition was launched by a Japanese film crew in 1992, and resulted in what has been called the best evidence for Mokele Mbembe. Spoiler, it's not. It's not the best evidence. 
It looks to me like an elephant is swimming, like they were up in some helicopter way too high up, watching an elephant swimming and nothing more. I'm sure you could find it if you go on to YouTube or anywhere. Maybe I'll throw it on the Facebook page, but it is really unimpressive. Okay, so it's been spotted hundreds of times. The locals know about it. Locals know to be wary of it. So what's been found of it? Well, there are tales of tribes being shown photo cards of local animals and then odd animals like dinosaurs and other creatures that aren't that don't exist. And all of the and they're asked to point out Michaelia and Bembe. So they're, they lay out all these photo cards and they say, hey, point out Michaelia and Bembe. There's elephants, rhinos, hippos. There's, like I said, there's a picture of an apatosaurus. And the story goes that all tribe members pointed right to the dinosaur card and said, that's Michaeli and Bembe. This one, this one is a little bit um, iffy at best. The Sunday Times of London reported in May of 1999 that members of the Kabanga tribe actually killed a Michaeli and Bembe. But nobody or skeleton was ever recovered from the tribe to support this claim. There's no photos. There's no nothing. So, again, take that one with a huge grain of salt. I've, I looked through the archives of the Sunday Times of London. I couldn't find anything, but there's a lot of people, a lot of sites out there saying that this is true. When they asked the locals where it sleep, they said it pointed, they always point to the caves. And again, I thought that was odd because I didn't know there were caves along the Congo rivers, um, but apparently there is. Um, There have been some photos of giant dinosaur-like footprints found on the shores and, um, like I said, some really bad video of what is claimed to be Michaeli Mbembe. But, uh, you know, as of this podcast, it still hasn't been found. Here's some audio. Now, this one's fairly quick, and I'll have a translation for it at the end. So just kind of, you know, muddle your way through it. Don't worry, it's very quick. Well, c'est ce que les gens disent... Mais je crois pas effectivement que c'est, c'est, c'est du fétiche. L'animal est réel. And, and tell me about uh, the history of this creature. Huyu mpepo wa majini yeye hutoka mara kwa mara kuja kwenye kando ya mtu. Na kija sisi wavuvi watuweka video zetu hapa na tuvui kabisa. Okay, so it starts with fishermen recounting Michele and Bembe encounters. And he says some people think that it is a, that it's like a, that it's a myth. But the animal is real. And then it cuts to two men, and they're talking about it as well. They're on the uh, the shore of the water. They're right there where the Michele and Bembe is supposedly seen. And these two men say, this demon or spirit, depending on the translation, comes from time to time to the shore. And when it comes, you know that we are fishermen. So when we're on the shoreline preparing our nets and our tools for fishing, we don't go into the water knowing it's present. However, when some unfortunate person goes into the water, we wouldn't help them when he meets that danger. 
And um, he's saying this, like, sympathetically. He's like, we can't help them, unfortunately. He goes on to say, because we will be eaten as well. Then he looks over to the guy next to him and says, you, you know what I mean? Ain't that right? You know, something like that. So here are locals talking that it happens all the time, and they know when they see Michele and Bembe, don't go in the water. So the locals to this day, they see it, they talk about it on a regular basis, and Paul Olin, who is a community development worker, community development worker, who has spent more than 10 years living in the Bayaka in Congo and Central African Republic, and the Central African Republic, says that the locals are in no doubt about the Michele and Bembe. He says when people are sitting around the campfire talking, they talk about Michele and Bembe. It's something that's a reality in everyday life. And he also goes on to talk about their spiritual connection or mystical relationship that they have with it. He says the way they see the world, it's a little different to the way you and I see it. Well, yeah, they live in a Congo with a freaking dinosaur, dude. Of course it is. Okay, so that's the first story down. Like I said, I love the Michele and Bembe. I'm always keeping an eye out for stories and news stories about it. So if they ever pop up, don't worry. I'll talk about it on Paranormal News. Okay, so the first story down, I've got local tribes talking about it in their native language, although I suppose they could be telling the story of Star Wars and I wouldn't know, but according to the translations, they were talking about Mokele and Bembe, so let's go with that. And with that, let's start traveling around the world to the places that don't listen to this podcast. Let's move off to Greenland for a creature known as the walrus dog, or, just to make my life difficult, it's known as... The Azi Wugum Kimuk T. Azi Wu Azi Wugum Kimukti. And it's found wherever walruses are found, which leads me to believe that people are seeing walruses only, but let's let's tell the story. So they say it looks like a large dog basically with a long alligator looking tail. Now people of the scene it have said it's smaller than a walrus, it's elongated and slender with a long, powerful, rounded tail. Its body is covered with with, uh, tough black scales that are supposedly impervious to spears. Now, some locals think it's a protector of the walruses, and that's why it's always seen with them. Here's where it gets odd, though. It's seen in Greenland. If you're listening in Greenland, thank you for listening in Greenland, because you haven't yet. It's also seen in Alaska, which I have plenty of listeners in Alaska, but thank you anyway. And the Inuit tribes of Alaska have said their ancestors have talked about it forever. And these people know exactly what walruses look like, so how could they misidentify one into a mythical walrus dog thing? It does seem odd to me, so who knows? Maybe there is something like a prehistoric walrus that's still out there. Now, the first non-Inuit sighting that I can find is from the writings of the 19th century explorer E.W. Nelson in 1900. The Ozzy Woom Goom, Ozzy Woom, uh, the walrus dog was universally feared by the native people around Alaska and the Bering Strait, as well as Greenland. The beast is said to have lived amongst herds of walrus, but would kill a man easily and without mercy should one happen upon it. Now, Nelson reported a tale to the walrus hunters in the Bering Strait being attacked by one of these things in their boat. And with all on board the boat being killed, they even tried to spear it, but like I said, it is seemingly impervious to spears. Although Nelson didn't allege to have sighted the beast himself, he reported that all the native people were very familiar with it. Next up is Iceland. 
And like just about everything on this list, uh, this one's hard to pronounce as well. It's known as the Hrosvlor. Hrosvlor! Or horse whale. That's not backwards masking this time. That's really what it's. Hrosvlor. Or horse whale. And from everything I can find about this one, it's also known as the evil whale because it loves to sink ships. Legends from the 13th century talk about it battling with and ultimately sinking ships off the coast of Iceland. Another fun horse whale fact is that its flesh, if you can kill one, is evil and unfit for human consumption. And even though I can't find anything to prove it, it said that it's banned by law to eat the flesh of a horse whale to this day. By who? I have no idea. Since when? Who knows? Is it true? Probably not. But that's what's written about it. Now it goes on to say that the horse whale will charge over the waves at high speed, holding its head just above the water with its mane trailing behind it. These whales sink ships by jumping onto them or pressing their weight onto them until they capsize. Horse whales are also portents of bad weather and can create huge waves by whipping their tails back and forth. So just to review, if you see one, the first rule of horse whale is don't eat horse whale. The second rule of horse whale is it's going to kill you, so I guess there's no real need for a third rule. All right. From there, let's move over to Svalbard. What the hell is a Svalbard? Well, surprising to me, Svalbard is a Norwegian archipelago between mainland Norway and the North Pole. So the Svalbards are my people. My last name is Sandvig. I'm Norwegian. Come on, Svalbard. Listen to me. Amongst Svalbard and its archipelago, there is an island called Spitsbergen. I know I'm making, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I swear these are real places. So there's this island called Spitsbergen. It's part of Svalbard, which is part of Norway, between Norway and the North Pole. There is one instance. Now, this one isn't a cryptid, but it might be amazing, so I'm leaving it on here, especially because I want a Svalbard listener. So this happened around June 1952 on this island. Now, the first mention of, well, I should tell you what it is, what happened on June 1952. There was a UFO crash, supposedly. So again, this is June 1952. The first mention of a saucer crash on Spitsbergen probably appeared in an article in a German newspaper, Sobered, Sabor, Sabrocker, Sabrocker Zentag, on June 28th, 1952. I didn't get any of that right. I apologize. Now, the piece was entitled, Auf Spitzenberger landet fliegenden Untertasse, or an English translation supposedly says, Flying Saucer Landed on Spitzbergen. The puzzle finally solved. They said it was a silver disc with a dome of plexiglass and 46 jets on the rim. I'm going to pause right here to say that is not the typical description of a UFO. But I'm going to get into that in a second, so let me keep going. So they wonder, is it of Soviet origin? Now, Norwegian jet planes had just started this year's, quote, summer maneuvers over Spitsbergen, it was a squadron of six planes. They were approaching at maximum speed, the Nordoxland, where units saw something. The jets had crossed over the Hinlopen Straits, 
when the weird crackling and rustling noises can be heard on all earphones and radio receivers. Now, the radio contact among the Jets was no longer possible, so all means of communication between the Jets seemed to be out of order. The news article goes on to say the radar reading, which had been showing white since from Narvik, was now on red. This indicated an alert. The approach of a metallic alien object equipped with a radio detection finder that had a very different frequency from the fighters. So that's what this article from the 50s is saying. The highly experienced pilots were able to communicate with each other by means of circling and diving so that each of them were aware of their common situation. Each one was searching the horizon with the utmost attention. The six fighters circled for some time, not finding anything that was out of the ordinary. But by chance, Air Captain Olaf Lansen happened to look down, which caused him to immediately start to dive, followed by a squadron. Because on the white, snowy landscape, this goes on to say, the crusty surface of which had an icy glitter, there was a metallic, glittering circular disc between 40 and 50 meters diameter, which was even brighter than the snow. Between uh, some wires and a tangle of supporting struts in the middle, the remains of an apparently part partly destroyed cockpit protruded. While circling for 60 minutes, the jet pilots could neither detect any signs of life nor determine the origin or type of the vehicle. Finally, they took course for Narvik in order to report their strange findings, basically. So, this news article is actually really difficult to read. The translation is pretty bad. Uh, Ultimately, they reported it These boats came and they checked it out. They landed safely next to the disc and they went to investigate it. Uh, One of the people that were supposedly part of this investigation, a Dr. Norsel, was a Norwegian Norwegian rocket specialist. He also established the reason why all the means of communication of the fighter planes had broken down on entering the zone of the landing spot and why the radar equipment had signaled an alarm. It said it had a plutonium core which was undamaged and transmitting on all wavelengths at a frequency of 934 hertz, which is not known by any country. He went on to inspect the entire disk and thought it might have been remote controlled. Again, the object had the diameter of 48.88 meters with slanting sides. It was round and unmanned. The circular steel object made of an unknown metal component resembled a silver disk. After ignition, 46 automatic jets located at equal distances on the outer ring rotated the disc around a plexiglass center ball that contains measuring and control devices for remote control. Now, this story, again, depending on where you get your information, it seems to say that the measuring instruments gauges had Russian symbols on them. But that wasn't universal through all the stories, so I really don't know if that's true or not. They thought that the radius of the disk seemed to be more than 30,000 kilometers and the altitude over 160 kilometers. The flying object, which resembles one of the legendary flying saucers, has sufficient room for high-explosive bombs, possibly nuclear. The Norwegian specialist assumed that the disk had started from the Soviet Union and had gone down over Spitzenberg due to a mistake in transmitting or receiving. Uh, Because it was crash-landed, it just stayed there. Now, the strange remote-controlled unmanned jet plane will be brought to Narvik on board a ship for further investigation. Now, after hearing of the description of the disk, 
the German V-weapon designer Richtel, he stated, again, supposedly, take all this with a grain of salt, it's really hard to get any specifics on this instance, but supposedly he said, that's a typical V7 on whose serial production I have worked myself. So, was it really Russian or was it a Nazi UFO? Or was it, you know, an actual UFO? Was it extraterrestrial? That's the question. Now, I can tell you now that declassified CIA documents do mention the craft and question its origin. America was very interested in what was found. The CIA said, In the wreck of the apparatus, the expert is said to have, dis- said to have discovered a radio piloting transmitter with a nucleus of plutonium transmitting on all wavelengths with the 934 hertz. Now, what's interesting about that is these are classified, now declassified CIA documents, and they are confirming the initial news story almost verbatim. They said the same, they said the same circumference. They said it was a radio piloting system. They talk about the 46 automatic jets. They talk about how the disc pivots around the central sphere, which contains the measurement and remote control equipment. And the declassified CIA documents do mention the measurement instructions have an inscription in Russian. Several pages of U.S. Air Force material that showed shortly after the incident was reported by the media. Now, the intelligence arm of the U.S. Air Force made inquiries with the Norwegian military who asserted that they had no knowledge of the crash. So they immediately disavowed that this crash was found, even though it was in the papers. And even though these CIA documents have said the exact same information at the time, the Norwegians went, well, we didn't find nothing. In fact, a uh, translation of the account read Oslo, Norway, September 4th, 1955. Only now a board of inquiry of the Norwegian general staff is preparing a publication of a report of the examination of remains of a UFO crash near Spitzenberger, presumably in early 1952. Colonel Jernon Darnbull, during an instruction to Air Force officers, stated, The crashing of the Spitzenberg disk was highly important. Although our present scientific knowledge does not permit us to solve all the riddles, I am confident that these remains from Spitzenberger will be of utmost importance in this respect. So they go on to say, that we have this thing, eventually we're going to learn how to fly it or repair it. Now, this same guy, that Colonel Darnbill, has been said to say this thing was not Russian. No way. Even though it had the Russian inscription on there, he thinks that was added after the fact. Now, again, what's tough about this one is the translations. I'm trusting sites I wouldn't normally trust, so take this whole story with a huge grain of salt. But we do know something was found. Our government was very interested in it. The U.S. government was very interested in it. The Russians were interested in it. The Norwegians and the English investigated it and seemed really to investigate this thing. If the sites are to be trusted, that news report, that newspaper story about it did say, contrary to information from Americans and other sources, second lieutenants Brobes and Tylinson have been assigned as special observers of the Arctic regions since the event at Spitzenberg. Reports the flying disc have landed in the polar region several times. Now, this same guy, Lieutenant Tylinson, says, I think the Arctic is serving as a kind of air base for the unknowns, especially during snowstorms when we were forced back to our bases. 
I've seen them land and take off on three separate occasions. I noticed that after having landed, they execute a speedy rotation around their discs, a brilliant glow of light, the intensity of which is variable with regard to the speed at landing and at takeoff, and it prevents any view of the things happening behind this curtain of the light or inside the disc itself. So this guy's seen him a few times. He's up there. The reports are true that him and this other guy are up there keeping an eye out for more UFOs in this area. There's also other newspapers that refer to a Nazi-developed craft built in the closing stages of the Second World War, which is real. And yes, it sounds a lot like the Spitzenberg disc. So, again, I don't know what to think about this one. Um, There are a ton of other sites that quote sources from around the world that said that the crew, that there was a crew, and that they were burnt to recognition, beyond recognition. Um, They also said that they were micro-meteor holes in the hull. How they know there are micro-meteor holes in the hall in the 1950s is beyond me, so I call BS on that one. Um, the seven bodies that were recovered in or around the UFO, they all seem to be human. That seems crap. I mean, it seems to me that this thing was remote piloted or they never found bodies. But there are a couple of sites that said, nope, bodies were found, they were human. Nope, bodies were found, they were burnt, they were alien. The odd thing is, this is very near to where there was a recovered Nazi Arctic base. It's been proven to exist. It was quote-unquote refound in 2016 by Russian researchers. So they did have a base there, not far from Spitzenberg. Spitzenberg, Spitzbergen. Spitzbergen, sorry. You might say it's a spitzing distance from the Nazi base. Sorry. So either the Norwegians found a UFO under the snow with charred bodies or they found a UFO on the snow without bodies. It's very reminiscent of the thing or they found a Nazi-built UFO, which is still amazing. Um, Either way, residents of Svalbard or Spitsbergen, if you're listening to this, please let me know if you have any relatives that found it and what did they find, what did they see. I would love to talk to you guys. All right, this next one takes a few much-needed listener locations up. It's called the Agogwe, A-G-O-G-W-E. The Agogwe is also known as the Kakundakari or the Colomba. Does that help? No? Okay, I'll tell you more. So basically, the Agogwe is a human-like creature seen in the jungles and forests of the Congo, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, and Zambia. So I'm knocking off a whole lot off this checklist with this one. Um, So thank you to the Agogwe. Now, the first sightings was in 1900. The first sightings were in 1900 by British Captain William Hikins. But it wasn't actually reported until the December issue of Discovery Magazine in 1937. So it went 37 years between first sighting and being reported about in a major publication. Now, British officer Cuthbert or Cuthbert Burgoyne stated he saw a similar creature in 1927. So again, it's been out, it's been around for a while. The last known sighting I could find, though, was in the late 50s. So it's been a while since it's been seen. Now, it's usually described as being anywhere from 2 to 5 feet tall. It has disproportionately long arms and rust-colored hair all over its body, which, to me, sounds like the Orang Pendek. Now, the skin underneath has an orange or coppery hue, 
The Agagwe's feet are only about five inches long. Now, the hairy animal is similar to a modern chimpanzee, but it has more of a rounded forehead, sharper and smaller teeth, and different hair and skin color. Now, look, to me, it doesn't surprise me that the orang pendek, which has been seen forever in the Sumatra, could also be found in other jungles. I have a feeling it's just, you know, it's kind of like Yeti or Sasquatch is seen all over the world. Orang pendek must have got around at some point. Now, let's stick with that. So that's about it for the Agagwe. Like I said, it hasn't been seen since the 50s. I hope they didn't kill him off. I hope it's still out there. I hope they didn't, didn't just misidentify orangutan. But anyhow, let's stick with Africa for these next couple. The next one is called the Incan Yamba. Basically, it looks like a snake, but it has a horse's head. Now, the majority of the sightings are seen at the Howick Falls or Howick Falls on the Umgeni River or Umgeni River in South Africa. If I get these names wrong, I sincerely apologize. I, I, I'm trying. Now, some zoologists, they suspect it might be a type of eel rather than a snake because it lives in the waterfalls and the lakes. Sightings of this animal go all the way back to cave paintings, and they've been found on the walls of caves inhabited by aboriginals in the KwaZulu natal area. Investigators believe that the Incanyamba to be a species of freshwater eel like the Anguilla mormorata, which grows up to about six feet in length. Now, the natives of the region insist that the Incanyamba is over 20 feet long, though, so it's, you know, significantly bigger than the other one. Now, the creature is rarely seen in the summertime, so it's thought to be migratory. It's been seen in the Mikomazi River, at the Midmar Dam, and at the Dargal region or Dargal area of the Midlands. So it's been seen all over the place, which sounds migratory to me and makes a lot of sense. Pairs of the Incanyamba have been seen in what looks like fighting, but may in reality be a mating ritual. So there's some cryptid sexy time sightings for you all. All right, with that, let's move over to the Mam the Mamlambo. Local natives call the Mamlambo the brain sucker. Now, this so-called monster has terrorized inhabitants along the Mizantlava River in Lesotho and South Africa. It is notorious for dragging its victims into the water. Supposedly, it only eats the head and the brains. Witnesses have described it as being six to seven feet in length with short legs and a long tail. The torso looks like a crocodile and the head was very horse-like in features. There have been some suggestions that it's bioluminescent, meaning, you know, it glows like a jellyfish. Some witnesses have reported that it has shiny green eyes as well. Now, the most recent reporting sightings that I could find was April of 1997 near the village of Lubaliko on the Mitsinlava River in South Africa. So it's been seen a bit more recently than the Agagwe. It seems to be out there, seems to be sucking out brains and taking off heads. Next up is another one that knocks a few locations off my list. Uh, this is my most wanted list in the area. And it's the Kangamato. It's a pterosaur-like creature, or sometimes said to be a ginormous bat in the Mawinlonga district's Giundu swamps of western Zambia, Angola, and the Congo. So it's also seen in western Zambia, the Angola, and Congo. All right, so basically this thing is a pterosaur by all accounts, and... Trust me, these accounts have been going back for quite a while. It was first described in English, that's important, first described in English by explorer Frank Welland in 1932 in his book, Witchbound Africa. 
which describes it as living along certain rivers and very dangerous. Everything about the Congomado is that this thing is dangerous. This thing will kill you quick. It says it often attacks small boats and anybody who disturbed the creature. They're typically described as either red or black in color with a wingspan of four to seven feet long. Members of the local Kayonde tribe identified it as similar to a pterosaur after, be shown, after being shown a picture of a pterosaur. So just like the Mokalium Bembe, they showed him, they gave him a number of options and they all pointed to a pterosaur and said, that's what a Congo motto is. In 1956, an engineer, J.P.F. Brown, allegedly saw the creature at Fort Roseberry near Lake Bangwelua. Lake Bangwelula. Wait, Bangwelula. Bangwelula. In northern Rhodesia, which is now Zambia. It was about 6 p.m. when he saw two creatures flying slowly and silently directly overhead. He observed they looked prehistoric. He estimated the wingspan of about three to three and a half feet and a beak to tail length of about four and a half feet. It reportedly had a long, thin tail, narrow head, which uh, elongated like the snout of a dog. Now, this next story about the Kangamato is really cool for everyone, except for the person it's about. In 1957, at a hospital at Fort Roseberry, a patient came in with a severe wound in his chest. Now, he claimed that a large bird-like creature had attacked him in that Bangwelu swamps. Basically, the local swamps. When asked to draw a picture of the creature, he allegedly drew a creature resembling a pterosaur. Just think about that for a second. A guy in 1950s, in the 1950s, the late 1950s, mind you, might have been impaled by a living pterosaur. That's amazing. All right, next to Mozambique, let's talk about giant freaking spiders. Now, if Australia is any indication, there are definitely giant freaking spiders out there. So this one has a high level of, damn it, it's real. And it's called the Jabafofi, or the Congolese giant spiders, found in Mozambique and all over the Congo. But for this podcast, I'm focusing on the Mozambique part of it. How big are they? (sighs) Well, some reports have said that these spiders are close to three feet from leg tip to leg tip. Nope. Now, these freaking uh, horrible spiders are said to dig shallow tunnels and cover it with leaves, then do a tripline-type web and wait in the tunnel for its next victim. Now, it's similar to that of several species of the trapdoor spider, it's said. Now, presumably, the spider eggs are a pale yellow-white and shaped like peanuts. Natives claim the hatchlings are bright yellow with a purple abdomen. Their coloration becomes darker and browner as they mature, and some of the peoples indigenous to the region in the Congo where this spider is seen say that this spider was once quite common, but has since become very rare, which I gotta say, I'm fine with it. I don't need a three-foot spider. I'm, I'm kind of good. The first sighting of the Jabafofi, or the large spider, or the spider from hell, as I like to call it, was by a Western observer, uh, by a Western observer, was in the 1890s near Lake Nyasa, during which British missionary Arthur John Symes and his men came upon one of these giant spiders. One of his men got tangled up in the enormous web, and two giant spiders, which were two and four feet in length, male and female, came out of the web and attacked them. Symes was bitten, but managed to escape after shooting one of them with his gun. 
Unfortunately for Symes, he subsequently developed symptoms including a deathly pallor, severe chills, swelling around the area where he was bitten, and became delirious before dropping into unconsciousness. And guess what? Yeah, he died. He died because two ginormous spiders bit him. They're just, oh, this. I hate spiders. Like, I'm fine with little spiders. I'm cool with them. They're in my house. I'm cool with them. They're cool with me. I've been bitten by a black widow. That sucked. I can tell you that, but I was fine. Um, we even have brown recluse in California. If, as long as they stay away from me, I'm fine. But a two or four foot long spider? Nope. I'm, I'm saying I don't like it. I'm done. Let's see. Uh, the fullest account appears to be in a cryptozoological book by George Eberhardt. Uh, which is interesting because this same guy, George Eberhardt, also has looked for Mokalium Bembe. So this guy went to look for Mokalium Bembe. Cool. I would love to do that. But is also searching for these evil spiders. Sorry, dude. Anyhow, in this book, Eberhardt relates the terrifying experience of an English couple traveling through a region of jungle in what is now called the Congo. R.K. Lloyd and his wife were motoring the Belgian Congo in 1938 when they saw a large object crossing the trail in front of them. First, they thought it was a cat or a monkey, but they soon realized it was a spider with legs nearly three feet long. On his third expedition to equatorial Africa, he goes on to say, I took the opportunity to inquire if the pygmies knew of such a giant spider, and indeed they did. They speak of the Jabba Fofi, or giant, which is a giant or great spider. They described a spider that is generally brown in color with a purple mark on the abdomen. They grow to quite an enormous size with a leg span of at least five feet. This thing gets bigger as I'm talking about it. The giant arachnids weave together a layer made of leaves, similar in shape to a traditional pygmy hut, and spin a circular web said to be very strong between two trees with a strand stretched across a game trail. He goes on to say, These giant ground-dwelling spiders prey on the diminutive forest antelope, birds, and other small game, and are said to be extremely dangerous, not to mention highly venomous. The spiders are said to lay white peanut-sized eggs in a cluster, and the pygmies give them a wide berth when encountered, but have killed them in the past. The giant spiders were once very common, but are again now a very rare sight. Okay, so for you guys and for the podcast, I wanted to do some more research into these evil freaking things. In March 2013, there was a video on YouTube, supposedly of the giant spider. It was caught on a night vision camera. It was near a water hole next to a tree in Mozambique. Let me save you the time. The video doesn't show shit. Something blurry, really small, something blurry is seen moving for about two fucking seconds. And if you told me it was a video of a nude Danny DeVito drinking from the nearby river, I'd say sure, because there's no way to tell what the blur is. If you want to see a blur move blurrily in black and white for about four seconds, look up the video. But trust me when I say it's a blurry blur that moves blurrily. Okay, I realize this next one is a tough one. It's a really tough get. But as of right now, I have zero listeners in North Korea. So if you have the ability to safely go to North Korea and safely Listen to Paranormal Almanac from a North Korean IP, because it has to count. Please do. Please don't die trying to listen to Paranormal Almanac in North Korea so you can tell everybody you were the first person in North Korea to listen to Paranormal Almanac. It's not that cool. But if you happen to do this, I'd appreciate it. 
And that leads me to a North Korean cryptid. It's called the Lake Tianchi Monster. And I bet you think it lives in Lake Tianchi, but you'd be wrong. It actually lives in Heavenly Lake, known as Cheonji in Korean. Now, it's located in the peak of the Bakdu or Baekdu mountain range within the Bakdu Dagen and the Changbai mountain regions between China and North Korea. Basically, it's uh, there's a lake. It's in the mountain regions between China and North Korea. So it's a little out of the way for me to investigate it, but here's what we know. The lake has many, many, many creature sightings, and I'm talking a lot of them. The locals think there may be as many as 20 of these creatures living in these waters. From what I can find, the first reported sighting was in or around 1903, when a large buffalo-like creature attacked three people, but was shot six times. The monster then retreated under the water and never resurfaced. The next sighting I could find occurred in August of 1962, when a local who was watching the lake with a telescope noticed two of the monsters chasing each other in the water. Now, somehow the story got out that more than a hundred people reported the same sighting. So, a whole lot of locals are spending a whole lot of time watching this lake. Now, the description of the creature really varies, though. From that of that buffalo-like description I just talked about, to some sightings have said that the creature has a human-like head with the typical Nessie body for the rest of the body. You know, it all looks like a Nessie up until the head, which looks like a human. In 2007, Zhu Yongsheng a Chinese television reporter said that he had shot a 20-minute video of six unidentified creatures in that lake on September 6th. So September 6th, 2007, this Chinese TV reporter shot a 20-minute video of six unidentified creatures. Later, he sent photos to Xinhua Jin Provincial Bureau. Now, according to a news report, one of these showed the six Nessies swimming in parallel in three pairs. Another of them featured the animals close together, leaving circular ripples on the lake surface, which is great and all, but um, I can't really find the videos. I can only find screen grabs, which I'll gladly put on the Facebook and Instagram page. If I could find the videos, I would really like it because the screen grabs are interesting, but it's not really telling what the hell I'm looking at. Now, Zhu went on to say, I went to the top of the, sl- I went to the, top of the southern slope of the mountain with two local guides at 5.05 a.m., hoping to shoot the sunrise. I was not able to do that because it was cloudy. He then saw these six what he calls seal-like thinned creatures swimming and frolicking in the lake for an hour and a half before they disappeared around 7 a.m. He said they could swim as fast as yachts, and at times they would disappear in the water. It was impressive to see them all acting at at exactly the same pace as if someone was giving orders. He said their fins, or maybe wings, were longer than their body. Zhu said he previously did not believe in the legends about the lake monsters, but he goes, I believe in what I saw with my own eyes. Okay, so that about does it for part one of the International Cryptids, Hey, I'm Talking About Your Country, Please Listen to My Podcast type episode. There are a ton more, uh, there are a ton more places around the world that I will talk about, and I part two, and that part two is coming very soon. So if you're traveling to some faraway locale, please listen to an episode of Paranormal Almanac. My goal for 2019 is 99% of the world checked off my listener's map. I think it would be amazing. I'm not asking for total world domination, but, you know, 99%. Oh, and also, 
if uh, if you're an astronaut or if you're up at the International Space Station or you have a relative that's up in space, I would love for them to listen to Paranormal Almanac from space. I think that would be cool as hell, too. All right. As always, thank you all for listening. I really, really, I cannot thank you enough for listening. Happy 2019. I hope you have a fantastic 2019. I hope I have some surprises coming up for you. Um, I definitely have some surprises coming up for you. Uh, But I hope to have some great episodes, some great guests, and some great locations. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been the first edition of Paranormal Almanac from 2019. It's Nick. Are you in the water? Nick, you have it.